Hello everyone, this is Sarah from Better Babies and welcome to the weekly. You might be wondering, what is the weekly? Well, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, always dashing around and you never quite get enough time to read and digest all the interesting things out there. So we thought, why not compile all the key topics, trends, expert insight and themes that we've been looking at in the past week into an easy and digestible podcast form that you can take with you on the go. So that's what we've done. One other question for those of you that don't know Better Babies, what are we? Well, we're dedicated to bringing the latest science and research plus expert opinion to help you on your journey from conception, pregnancy and early years. Why are we doing this? Well, the reality is that the modern world looks very different to the one that existed even 50 years ago, but in many cases, the advice we're given pretty much hasn't evolved. So we're aiming to use modern science in practical and easily applicable ways to help you and your family reduce risks wherever you can and live healthier lives where possible. So What's on the weekly this week? Well, we've been lucky enough to have two back-to-back expert podcasts. So last week was Mahantesh Karoshi doing a super interesting podcast all about egg freezing, the fact that it's on the rise, why it's on the rise, what to expect when you go through it. Um, So definitely worth a listen if you haven't caught up with that. And then the week before that was the lovely Natalie Ferris talking all about how we can use exercise to fight the enemy, which is inflammation, particularly important if you are going through a process like this. So we've got quite a backlog here this week, so we'll try and make it as weekly-ish as possible, i.e. we're not going to bang on too much. But of course, if you find something interesting on the podcast, there is a lot more detail up on the site, betterbabies.com. So this is just a bit of a taster and to give you the quick highlights. So what's on this week? Well, first topic we're going to be looking at is something called N-acetylcysteine. Now, sounds complicated, but this is actually a supplement. Now, generally speaking at Better Babies, we're a bit skeptical on supplements and we'll go into why. But this one can potentially be pretty interesting. Is it even, in fact, the antidote to a lot of the toxicity of modern life? So we're going to be digging into what this is, why it's potentially so powerful and why it might well be something that you might want in your life, particularly as you're going through this journey. Next up, one of the other reasons we started Better Babies is because the internet, let's be honest, is a wash full of stuff that is not necessarily backed up in anything factual. And often when you're going through a tricky time or you're having trouble conceiving, you'll turn to Google to help get some answers. Now, There's lots of things out there, one of which we saw recently was a claim that peas can be linked to infertility. Now, this is particularly alarming given the rise in veganism and peas used as a complete protein source. So we thought we'd turn to the science and see if there was any truth in this. Following that, premature birth, something that is unfortunately on the rise and something that if you're in that position, you can feel pretty helpless. However, There's been an interesting new study out having a look at a role that potentially parents can play to not only um, enhance the outcome for babies, but also for themselves. So that's pretty interesting. Next up is radiation. Um, I'm not talking about uh, nuclear disaster, luckily. I'm talking about 
things that are on the rise generally in our background daily lives. So mobile phones, Wi-Fi, airport scanners. So the question we're going to be asking is, what does the latest research say about the rise in this? And how, if at all, can it affect pregnancy, conception and early years? So it's all the things you need to know around that. And then finally, sun tanning. We've made a big uh, fuss about the latest research that's around um, sun creams. But then we thought, why not look at self-tanning products? Obviously, summer's on the, uh, on the up here in the Northern Hemisphere, and we all want to look nice and bronze, but are these products safe to use when you're pregnant and breastfeeding? So once again, we dug into the science. So, got a lot to get through. So without further ado, let's get going. Okay, so N-acetylcysteine sounds complicated, but question is, is this the antidote to modern life, pregnancy complications, developmental issues, and even infertility? Sounds like a pretty bold claim. Now, as I mentioned, at Better Babies, we're pretty skeptical on supplements, and there's many reasons for this. One, let's face it, it's become big business. As we all want to get healthier, companies have wised up, and everyone wants a quick and easy fix, particularly if you can just take a pill and forget about it. So that's why the supplement market has been booming. Now, that's not to say that all supplements are bad. There are actually some really good ones out there. But like everything in life, everyone's an individual with different needs. So you can't really apply a blanket approach. Secondly, some of the supplements out there that are being sold can't actually be absorbed by the body. And this is particularly interesting when it comes to NAC. Um, and also there's lots of wildly different manufacturers and qualities, etc. So bottom line is supplements can be really useful. You just have to do your homework and always remember to consult a doctor before taking them, especially if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Now, why are we interested in N-acetylcysteine? And let's, to make it easy, just call it NAC, which is, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, um, the name that it also goes by. So why might we need it first and foremost? A lot of the things that we talk about here at Better Babies is the fact that research is increasingly linking a lot of the modern issues we face in terms of chronic health conditions to a couple of different things. And this is obviously just some contributing factors because in many cases there's lots of things. But what research is suggesting is that one culprit in particular is something called oxidative stress. Now there's so much on the website about this, but in a nutshell, think of it like this. This is something that is produced as a waste product. It is something that our cells in general produce just as their daily life. But what's happening is the more toxicity our bodies are having to process, more infections, more stress, all the kind of negative things that are coming into our modern daily lives produce more of this. Now, in a normal circumstance, as our cells produce this waste product, our body can mop up with its own special defender antioxidants. And those two things are in balance, and that's all good. The problem is, is when you get more of this waste than our body's ability to clean it up. And that's when you can start to sow the seeds for problems later down the line, because this is when you get oxidative stress, which has been shown to damage cells and DNA. Now that is not what you want any time in your life, but it's especially not what you want when you're trying to conceive and grow a little person. So this is the modern enemy that we're really fighting. I, I shouldn't say it's a modern enemy, it's always been the enemy, but it just seems that 
there are more factors that are going on to increase the amount of this waste and decrease the body's ability to defend itself. So what we're always looking for here at Better Babies is ways that A, we can avoid this extra waste being produced, but B, ways we can look to boost the body's defence. Now, one of the ways that we have found, or science has found to be extremely uh, good, is the body's own defence mechanism known as the mother of all antioxidants and something called glutathione. And once again, we have written about this extensively. This is the mother of all antioxidants and has been shown to have superb abilities to basically mop away all this waste and protect our body's cells, just what we need. Now, this is where it gets interesting about the supplement market. Now, some of my friends um, who are pretty health conscious tell me that they take glutathione supplements. Sounds like a good thing to do? Well, Rationally speaking, yes, because the body can produce its own glutathione, but it's actually quite difficult to get in uh, food form. So you can see why people would want to take a supplement. However, major problem here, if you're taking it in tablet form, science has shown very clearly that the body cannot absorb it. And the reason is, is it basically gets digested away um, as it goes through the intestinal tract. So if you are taking a glutathione supplement, stop doing it because it is a waste of money and your body can't actually absorb it. So the question is, what can you do instead? Well, this is where NAC comes into play. Now, NAC has been shown to be very powerful when it comes to building up the body's own production of glutathione. And this is how it works. In a nutshell, glutathione is made of three main amino acids. And one of these is something called cysteine, along with glycine and glutamic acid. Now, as the name NAC or N-acetylcysteine suggests, it's got something to do with cysteine here. Now, what happens is, is that this NAC is actually a precursor to one of these core building blocks, cysteine. Now, research has also shown this is actually one of the main factors that either helps or limits the body's ability to produce it. So, what research has shown is that taking NAC has actually had strong correlation to building up glutathione within the body, which, as we say, is one of the main ways that the body can defend itself from all these toxins. So that's positive number one. But interestingly enough, NAC doesn't stop there. Now, it's quite difficult to unpick how the NAC benefits the body. Is it just because it produces more glutathione or does it have a standalone benefit? Now, one bit of research um, that's emerging or in several papers is actually its ability to act as a detoxifying agent for heavy metals. Once again, something that's prolific in our environment and cause all kinds of health issues particularly around neurodevelopment and cell and DNA damage. So one study that's actually up on the site looked at its ability to detoxify lead. Lead's pretty persistent in our environment, and it's actually been found in everything from petrol to batteries to water pipelines and even in cosmetics. And it's also used in various industrial activities, mining, smelting, etc. And it's particularly um, troubling from a neurotoxicity perspective. So one way that it's been shown to be effective in its own right is to actually fight against things like this. And also it's been shown to have benefit detoxifying mercury and um, cadmium. So two other environmental culprits and no neurotoxins. 
So, all good, sounds promising. Question is, should you take it and when should you take it? Well, of course, as we said right at the beginning, when it comes to any supplements, particularly if you think you may be pregnant, you are pregnant or you're breastfeeding or if you're taking any other medication, the absolute first port of call is to talk to your doctor. Just be smart about it. It's just a conversation. And then once you get the clearance, it's all good. But first and foremost, the thing to know about NAC and some good news here is that it actually has a long established safety record in both adults and children. It was approved by the FDA back in the mid-60s and actually most supplements recommend taking between 600 to 800 milligrams per day, but higher doses have actually been uh, shown to be safe. Of course, as always, when you're looking at a particular brand, always follow their guidelines, that's first and foremost, and all the uh, advice from your doctor. But bottom line here is actually this has been shown to be not only safe, it's been shown to work. And most crucially, it has been shown to actually get absorbed by the body when you take it in an oral supplement form. Once again, that's really important. In fact, what's really good about NAC is it's been shown to be just as effective if you take it orally in a tablet than if you would get it in an IV drip. And that's because it um, is pretty much 100% bioavailable. So all in all, this seems like a pretty interesting thing to consider. So once again, check it out, all the info on the site. And also, if you've got any questions or concerns, you're pregnant, breastfeeding, or taking any other medication, speak to your... Okay, next up, what is this fuss about peas and infertility? Now, let's be honest. Usually, in this modern world, if you're going through difficulties or you really want to achieve something that's proving harder to do most of us turn to Google to really try and get answers or dig deeper. I know I certainly did that in the initial stages of trying to get pregnant. But the trouble with that is what we find on the internet isn't necessarily always completely accurate and always backed by science. And that means that we can get down rabbit holes that can actually end up causing us more trouble than good. So when we saw this uh, discussion on the internet, we should say, about peas causing infertility, we thought we would absolutely check this out. Now, of course, you want to check this out anyway, but it's even more important because at the moment, of course, there is this big surge in the trend towards veganism. And the key thing about peas is that um, they are actually a complete source of protein. And that's obviously something if you are trying out the vegan thing, you really need to be focused on. And it's especially important to have enough protein if you're trying to conceive. That's just absolutely fact. There's no debate about that. So we thought, let's dig into what this claim is and what the science actually said. So let's get into the background. Now, this all originates from some studies that were done in the mid-50s. Now, the background is interesting because actually the researchers were trying to come up with a cheap form of contraceptive. And actually, they were thinking about using peas. Now, that might seem a bit strange, but this is linked to something, a compound found in peas. Now, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to butcher the name of the compound, so I apologise to any scientists who are listening to this. But it is called M-xylohydroquinine, I think. It's on the website if you want to check it out. But this study basically looked at this compound, as I said, something that's found in peas, and it showed 
that this compound could cut fertility by as much as 60% in both men and women. Pretty alarming stuff. So what does this mean? Should we throw out all of our pea protein completely? Well, let's take a look in a little bit more detail. Now, first and foremost, we have to be very clear here that there's not a lot of information available on this study or follow-up studies. Now, what we what is not clear is that this or from this study is how much of this compound was used, how often it was consumed, and exactly where it was derived from. So was it taken from peas, for example? So reality is we don't know about that. The next thing that throws even more confusion is that there were a couple of follow-up studies done then in the early 60s. So one study looked at the effect of this compound on rats over a 30-day period. And interestingly enough, this study showed no impact on fertility for the rats. So all in all, pretty confusing. So what's the answer? Well, firstly, it seems like the research was dropped. Um, maybe it's because no one wants 60% um, chance of not conceiving rather than 100% charge of not conceiving if you're looking at it as a contraceptive. But the reality is there has been no real research done since. Now, that's not to say that the research done in the 50s and 60s is not valid. It's just saying that we don't really have enough evidence. Now, when it comes to science, there are very few things that are absolutely black and white in fact. Science is often about weighing up the evidence. And obviously, you ideally want as many studies as possible with as big a sample size as possible properly tested in order to get a relatively reliable answer. And the absolute truth here is we don't have that. Now, of course, as I said, this doesn't mean that the studies done in the 50s are not valid. It just means that there's not enough evidence here that you should rush to throw out all of your pea protein, especially seeing as it's a complete protein source, which is very crucial if you're a vegan and cannot get protein from animal sources. Now, of course, there are others. Um, so hemp um, is, is a good one, for example, that I see a lot in um, instead of pea protein supplements there's now hemp protein supplements. So it's up to you. If you do want to avoid because you don't want to take any risks at all, then that's okay. That's your decision. But for now, from our perspective, looking at the science, there's just not enough here to justify complete elimination, particularly as protein is super important for health and fertility. So that being said, clearly more studies are needed to be done and we'll be certainly watching out for any follow-up. So stay tuned on that. But ultimately, I think with a lot of things in life, it's all about moderation. Now, if you're having tons and tons of pea protein every day and you're concerned, well, maybe that's something to address. But from our perspective, balanced diet and whole unprocessed foods is never going to do you too much harm. And certainly from the evidence that we have at this point, it's not a reason to avoid peas altogether. But if you want to check out the studies, have a look up on the site. And also you might want to have a look at pronunciation of the compound that I've probably butchered. But so far, we say it's fine to continue. Just as with anything in life, it's all about moderation. Next up, it's all about premature babies. Now, nobody wants this to happen to them. But the reality is, is unfortunately, this is on the rise. And statistics are showing that the number of babies born prematurely continues to rise globally. In fact, the latest figures show that in the US, as many as one in eight are now born prematurely. 
And according to figures published in the highly respected uh, medical journal, The Lancet, last year saw 15 million babies born before 37 weeks. And that number has grown just under a percent per year over the last three decades. Sadly, it does remain the biggest cause of infant death at one month old and below. So this is a reality. And it's something that is always good to be prepared about, no matter what your circumstance, because ultimately birth is unpredictable and we can't control everything. Now, the good news is that survival rates for babies born prematurely has increased. Now, alongside that, there can be potentially long-term consequences, especially when it comes to very early preterm birth. But the good news is we're always evolving. Research is coming forward and we're definitely making advances into how we can help these babies progress and develop um, to the best of their ability. Now, often as a parent, if you are in this situation, you can end up feeling incredibly helpless and obviously terribly anxious. Now, what we saw, um, which was particularly interesting, is a study published recently, once again in the highly respected medical journal, The Lancet, looking at a study that was done showing that roles that potentially parents can play alongside staff at the NICU can potentially be really helpful for promoting solid neuro and long-term development in babies. So we thought, let's check it out and see if you find yourself in this position, what you can potentially do in order to make yourself and your baby in the best possible position. So let's take a look at the study. So this study that was published, and as I said, link is on the actual website, so betterbabies.com, looked at the role that parents themselves play. Now, despite the fact that we know that the bond between parents and child is extremely important in the early days, often the NICU staff are, of course, trying to do one thing and one thing only, and that's keep your baby alive. And as a result, a lot of the time, because obviously they're doing their absolute best, parents can be left to almost visitors in the NICU. And that has been shown not to be necessarily the right thing to do. This study, in fact, backed this up very strongly with long-term evidence showing tangible benefits to integrating parents into the care team. And they referred to this as family integrated care. Now, what this is, is basically shifting the role of parents from quote-unquote, disempowered observers in the NICU to active caregivers. Now, interestingly, this study showed clinically significant improvements in terms of, number one, increased infant weight gain, number two, lower infections picked up in the hospital environment, number three, lower parent stress, number four, fewer readmissions, and number five, higher breastfeeding rate, sorry, higher breast milk feeding rate, and that's an important distinction to note. So we'll go through why these factors are so significant, but let's actually look at the role that the parents in the study actually played. Now, once again, all of this is caveated in the fact that this happened where it was possible. Now, unfortunately, there can be restrictions on doing this depending on circumstances and level of prematurity of the baby. However, where it was possible, the parents in the study were encouraged to participate in things like bathing, feeding, dressing, skin-to-skin care, changing, giving oral medication, taking the temperature, and general interaction. They were given education in terms of how to do this, how to be made safely a part of it, and also how to feel part of the decision-making process. 
So let's break it down about why these, um, what the study showed is so important to long term and actually some of the detail and some of the things that perhaps you can put into practice. So let's have a look at them one by one. So increased weight gain, which is what the study showed. Now, growth has been shown to be an important independent determinant of neurodevelopmental outcome. Now, the increased weight gain and enhanced high-frequency breast milk feeding are important improvements in preterm care. Now, the key thing when it comes to neurodevelopment, and this is why we do have problems with premature babies, is that when it comes to the brain, there is a large leap forward in development in the third trimester. And in fact, you see the brain typically increase in volume about four to five times. And by 30 weeks of gestation, the brain has only achieved half of its full-term weight. So it really is something that's crucial. And similarly, the lungs have been shown to be very susceptible to injury when they're immature. And the large chunk of the development actually occurs at the latter stages of gestation. So from a weight gain perspective, this has been shown to be an important part of this neurodevelopment and enhancing this when outside the womb. Next up, as I mentioned, breast milk. Now, we know there are significant benefits to both gut health and neurodevelopment for both preterm and term infants for actually ingesting breast milk. And this was very much echoed by the study. So it showed that breast milk feeding improved neurodevelopmental outcomes. Now, of course, the main issue here is whether or not a baby can take milk from the breast directly which is probably unlikely, especially in the early stage. So this actually involved mothers expressing milk, but actually it was encouraging the mother or the father, not just to, um, of course, express the milk in the mother's case, but also to feed the baby where possible. So if they're in their lap, if they're being tube fed, or if you're using a syringe, you as a parent can be involved. So asking to get involved with that is certainly a positive thing to do. Now, the next up is the mental health and stress and trauma side of things. Now, having a preterm baby is highly stressful for both the parents and the child. Now, what this research showed is that incorporating parents more into the NICU care process actually increased the psychological well-being of parents, which should in turn translate into better long-term mental health for not only the infant's parents, but actually for the infant bonding and the enhanced outcomes for the infant as well. So by being more directly involved in your baby's care, stress rates look like they're coming down. And we know that stress is not helpful when it comes to the bonding process. And anything that can aid the bonding between parent and child can have a tangibly positive benefit when it comes to outcomes. Not only that, but the study touched upon the fact that if the parents are the primary caregiver, even within the NICU, it brings a more consistent environment which can help the infant deal with some of the trauma associated with the NICU, such as isolation, stress, and particularly when it comes to painful procedures. It also gives more opportunity for skin to skin and more developmentally responsive care. Now we know that a parent's responsiveness, where possible of course, to their infant is an important determinant of neurodevelopmental outcomes, which is another reason why reducing parental stress and anxiety helps increase not only the parent's connection to the baby, but potentially then the developmental outcome of that child. So all of this 
is good in the sense that it shows there is something as a parent in a time where you can feel incredibly helpless that can actually help both you and your baby. Now, there's a major caveat here. There are clearly likely to be limitations when it comes to NICU care. And you should, of course, always, always work within the um, realms of what the NICU staff deem to be important and possible. Now, they are, of course, dedicated to making sure that your baby survives and does well. But I think the key message is don't be afraid to speak up to the NICU and express your desire to participate as much as you possibly can. Now, similarly, if there are big limits because of circumstance or very, very premature levels of birth, then do not feel guilty if you can't do this. As I said, the NICU staff will be doing everything they can for your child. And most importantly, as your child grows and improves, there'll be lots more opportunity for the above. So it doesn't need to be immediately day one. It's just about doing it gently, working with the staff and just simply expressing your desire to be part of the process. And it's absolutely within your right to do that and to work with the NICU staff. So much more available detail up on the site. But we really hope that if this is something you face, this is something you can bear in mind and know that there are positive things that you can potentially do so you don't feel quite so helpless. Next up, it's all about radiation. Now, once again, we don't mean nuclear explosion, but we're talking about the fact that a lot of things like airport scanners, mobile phones, ultrasounds, Wi-Fi, all of these things that are now super prolific in our environment didn't exist a few years ago and certainly not to the extent that we have them now. So the question is, how potentially harmful can they be, especially during the delicate process of growing a very small person? So just to give you some context, instinctively when I was pregnant and traveling a lot through airports, I always opted for a pat down rather than going through the scanner wherever I could. I also wasn't too keen on having a phone in my belly. I don't own a microwave. And I certainly kept my phone out of the bedroom at night when I was sleeping. But the question to my mind was, is there any real risk from this and other you know, sources of modern radiation? Or was I just being paranoid? So let's turn to the science. And let's start with the basics. So the issue with these things is what's known as radiation. And of course, there are huge ranges when it comes to radiation. But let's have a look at it in this context and look at how this can potentially hurt us or a growing person. So in simple terms, radiation is where energy is emitted in the form of waves or movement of particles. So for our purposes, they're broadly broken down into two types. So the first type is ionizing radiation. So this is high energy particles. Or there's non-ionizing. So that's lower energy. Now, as you might already imagine, you want to look out for the ionizing form. This has the higher energy form, which can potentially pose more damage to DNA. This is not what you want at any stage of your life, but particularly not in the vulnerable stage of rapid development. So the question is, where do you find ionizing radiation? This can come in various forms and from various sources, but most commonly when you think of day to day, Potential exposure is associated with things like certain types of medical imaging, so x-rays, CT scans, but also in tobacco products, certain phosphate fertilizer, and also in some manufacturing processes. But like with everything in life, it's about how much you get and what stage of your life that you're in when you're particularly vulnerable. 
So low doses of ionising radiation have not been associated with miscarriage. However, what is important is that doses higher than normal within two weeks of conception could potentially present a risk. So let's break that statement down. What do you define as higher than normal? Now let's put this all into context. We all experience naturally occurring background radiation, even from the Earth, so radon, for example, and then to other things like air travel. Now, an average person in the world will receive a background radiation of three millisieverts. So that's just to give you the baseline. Now, an unborn baby will have received a very small volume of background radiation before birth. So that's between about 0.5 and 1. And once again, to put this into context, a single CT scan in one dose, obviously depending on where in the body, is between 2 to 16. So that's obviously a lot higher, and that perhaps gives you a bit of context. But this is also why most doctors and dentists will seek to avoid an x-ray or other medical imaging until you've given birth, unless there's an urgent medical reason. And even then, they'll likely use the lowest dose possible. So first and foremost, as we're gathering that the most crucial and most vulnerable time, especially when it comes to miscarriage, is the very earliest point. If you are going to see a doctor or dentist and you think there's even the remotest chance of being pregnant, you must tell them it is important. So the question is, would you need these potential tests if you are pregnant? Now, hopefully not is the reality, but a couple of things to bear in mind. Pregnancy does increase the risk of a blood clot, so DVT, and in fact, it can increase the risk as much as five times. Now, a CT scan may well be used, and if, they, if a doctor is using this, it's because it's very necessary. That being said, some hospitals may be able to offer an alternative nuclear medicine tool to do this, but it's just worth discussing with your doctor, but always go with what they're saying on this. But do ask the question. Um, it is worth doing. Now, that being said, there is no evidence that the risk to the unborn baby occurs after a single imaging test. And as we said, it would only likely be performed if strictly necessary. So it's just something to be bearing in mind. Now, what about other things like ultrasound or MRI? Now, obviously, if you're pregnant, ultrasound is used pretty regularly. Now, the good news is this does not involve ionizing radiation. So that's why this is more acceptable. That being said, the received wisdom is that you should still avoid having unnecessary scans. Let your baby just bumble along nicely. It wants to be left alone in peace. Plenty of time to see it when it's out. So just do it when necessary and try and avoid asking for more, even though it's tempting. Now, what about other sources? So airports, tobacco, Wi-Fi. So first and foremost, let's go to these airport scanners. These are essentially very low-dose x-rays. Now, studies show you would need around 2,000 trips to equal the level of radiation from a single chest x-ray. So don't worry about it too much. That being said, they can increase your lifetime risk to low-level radiation, especially if you're traveling a lot, which can, of course, present risk of damage for DNA. And children are, as always, more vulnerable. So it's clearly nothing to lose sleep about. But if you want to, just opt for a pat down when you're pregnant. It's definitely not going to hurt. It just might take you a bit of extra time. Now, air travel is a bit of an interesting one, especially to me personally, as I generally have to speak, speaking, have to travel a lot. Now, we spoke to one of our Better Babies expert board advisors, gynecologist and obstetrician Mahantesh Karoshi, and talked to him about what he advises to his patients. 
Now, interestingly enough, he actually advises against unnecessary air travel in the early stages of pregnancy, because once again, this has been shown as the most vulnerable time from the radiation perspective. So he's talking about before 20 weeks. Why is this? Well, to give you an example of the radiation from flying, let's take a flight from Los Angeles to New York. So that's around two and a half thousand miles, so about a six hour flight. Now, the radiation you experience from that is equivalent to two chest x-rays and eight dental x-rays. So particularly at the earliest stages, it's good just to cut down to strictly necessary air travel wherever you possibly can. And that's certainly Mahantesh's advice. Next up, tobacco just goes without saying that this is a terrible choice for health in general, but especially if you're trying to be pregnant, are pregnant or around a child. There are many reasons. But did you know that radiation is another? Now, smoking tobacco means you're exposed, exposed to radioactive element called polonium-210. So whether you chew it, you smoke it, or exposed to secondhand smoke from tobacco, you are exposing yourself to radiation. Yet another reason to avoid this at all costs. Now, microwaves, and I'm not just talking about microwave ovens, but I'm talking about mobile phones, Wi-Fi, etc. The reality is the jury in the science continues to be evolving and it continues to be out. There's absolutely nothing definitively conclusive. But as always, when you're pregnant, it's not going to hurt you to err on the side of caution, particularly as in 2011, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, released a statement adding radio frequency electromagnetic fields, so that includes microwave and millimeter waves, to their list of things that are possibly carcinogenic, i.e. potentially destabilizing to DNA. So they argued that the evidence, which is still accumulating, is strong enough to support a conclusion that there could be some risk. So the question is, what do you do with all of this information? Can seem daunting, and the evidence, as usual, is not conclusive, but there's no harm in being proactive against even potential risks when you're in this vulnerable time. So here are a couple of things that we want to consider. So first up, something you can do in a positive way to help support your body. Now, research has shown that eating foods that contain chlorophyll, which is what makes plants green, by the way, can help eliminate isotopes and free radicals from the body. So sources of chlorophyll, chlorella, spinach, spirulina, broccoli, green cabbage, collard greens, asparagus, matcha tea, green beans and peas. So that's up all on the website. But the other thing is also sea vegetables, which are high in iodine. Now these can potentially block radioactive iodine from being absorbed by the thyroid gland. So it's another thing to check out. Now, some easy ways to reduce your exposure to non-ionizing radiation. Number one, wear headphones when you're using a mobile phone. Number two, avoid microwave ovens. Number three, might seem a bit old school, but using an ethernet cable versus Wi-Fi or just simply switching off the Wi-Fi when not in use is a good move. Then using desktop versus a laptop when you can. Switching off devices that you're not using, also good for the environment and your electricity consumption. Avoiding putting wireless devices on your body for long periods of time. And then creating a sleep sanctuary, which is good for your health anyway. So unplugging everything that's not necessary. Using battery-powered alarm clocks versus your mobile phone. And basically keeping all of your Wi-Fi devices out of your bedroom and at the bedroom of your child. So 
bottom line here is there's nothing really to lose major sleep at over here but when you're in the very earliest stages that's important to bear in mind and if you do fancy being cautious there are lots of easy things you can do to reduce your risks now if you're ever concerned just speak up to your doctor once again even if you think it's even a small possibility that you may be pregnant it's worth doing and there's no harm in sharing that information with your doctor now for much more check out the website um, all details on that Okay, so final topic in our bumper edition of the weekly is all about self-tanning products. Now, for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, we're coming into the summertime, um, and two things that have come up over the recent few years is one, we've kind of learned that lying in the sun for hours is probably not the right thing to do, and much more recently, and something we've covered a lot here at Better Babies, is there have been compounds found in many sun creams that have been shown to be potentially dangerous. Now this is oxybenzone or benzophenone 3. So all the information is up on the website. But do you, does this mean that we're destined to be super pasty all summer long? Well, not necessarily. Now, of course, as we've learned that too much uh, sun is perhaps not the best thing for our skin. There has been a lot more um, and a lot of evolution in self-tanning and it's no longer looking like uh, someone has spilt orange paint on you either. There's obviously great products available. Now the question I had when I was pregnant is, is this safe to put on your skin if you are pregnant or breastfeeding? So we decided to delve into the detail here. Now, Here's what you need to know. So firstly, take a step back. Self-tanners like, are basically like any other cosmetic or personal care item. So anything that's going on your skin, be mindful of because research has shown around 60 to 70% of what you put on your skin can get absorbed. So we, of course, write extensively about the key things to watch for with any kind of cosmetic or personal care ingredient. But just a few common things to watch out for is anything with added fragrance, because these typically contain things called phthalates, which are known hormone disruptors, and parabens, which are a form of preservatives, are also known as hormone disruptors. So those are always the first two things to look out for in any cosmetic or personal care product that you use. So that's your first port of call. Now on to self-tan specifically. Here's what you need to know. So the key ingredient when it comes to self-tan is something known as dihydroxyacetone or DHA, although important to note, we're not talking about the fish oil form of DHA here, which is good for the brain. We're talking about something else. Now, what's the deal with this? So essentially, this compound works, I gives us that lovely bronze glow, by reacting with amino acids which are present on the first layer of the skin's surface. Now, this is actually really important as we say, we know that a great deal of what is applied to our skin can be absorbed and get into our bodies and bloodstream, hence the need for caution. But the good news here is that most DHA, given the nature of how it works, does not actually pose too much of a risk of actually penetrating the skin because of the way it works and therefore is actually quite low risk. Now, there's a couple of caveats here, of course. So that's the good news. One thing to watch out for, however, there are a few products out there which use things called ureas, which allow certain chemicals to penetrate deeper into the skin. Now, these products are definitely something to avoid. 
And we've put up on the site a couple of common uh, ingredients that can come up that you should watch out for. So once again, check out betterbabies.com for that. But it also depends on how much DHA is used and also how it's used. So to be clear, DHA has been approved by the FDA, who seem a little bit more liberal than the Europeans, but it has been approved by the Europeans, but with one caveat. So in Europe, the Scientific Committee on Consumer Safety did evaluate the safety of this. And in 2010, they concluded that use of it is absolutely fine in concentrations up to 10%. So pretty simple here, make sure the one you use has DHA below a concentration of 10%, and that should be pretty easy to find out. Now, the second thing to think about is how it's applied. So as we've said, it's approved for use topically on the skin, so when you rub it into your skin. However, other forms of application, so spraying it, for example, is technically actually an unapproved use. Now, as above, when it's just simply applied to the skin, it shouldn't be a problem because it's not actually absorbed. However, We've all probably been in a spray tanning booth and you know that even if you're holding your breath, you're probably going to end up inhaling some of it. And that's, of course, another story, because when you inhale something, you take it into your body and effects relating to inhalation have not been tested properly or approved. So bottom line here is it appears much safer to avoid the spray application, particularly if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, or hoping to be pregnant. So just stick to the standard application, get one of those mitts, they're pretty good. Now, one other interesting thing that came out of the research is that some of it has suggested that the chemical reaction that gives you this bronze glow on the skin can cause free radical formation. So once again, and click on the site um, for a little bit more detail about why you don't want this. And that happens when sun radiation is added in. So bottom line is, if you're using a self-tan, probably avoid too much exposure to the sun. So which are the good suntan well, self-tanners to actually use? Here's a quick summary. Number one, use those that are not spray tan application. Number two, Use those that are free from added fragrance. Number three, free from preservatives like parabens. Number four, free from ureas, which can cause DHA to penetrate more deeply into the skin. And finally, look for a DHA that is eco-cert. Now that means there's no GMO, no synthetic perfumes, uh, and no parabens in the DHA itself, although you still need to check the rest of the product. Now, we've got a couple of our favorite brands up on the site, who, by the way, we're not being paid to promote, but we just found a couple that actually tick a lot of these boxes that you can feel pretty safe using while you're pregnant. So bottom line here, it is safe to look nicely bronze. You just have to do a little bit of digging, and there are absolutely some decent brands that won't pose too much of a risk. But of course, as with anything in life, it's always prudent to practice a bit of moderation, and it's probably not for everyday use when you are pregnant, but no harm in treating yourself now and again. Just as with anything, it's a little bit of awareness. So this concludes the bumper edition of the weekly. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, once again, if you do like what we do here on the podcast, please do write us a review. We would love that. And if you've got any comments or questions, please go onto the site, click contact us or email sarah at betterbabies.com or check us out on Instagram at sarahbetterbabies. So we hope you've enjoyed and we'll see you next week.